Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through the art of storytelling. Welcome everyone to Beyond Queer Stories. I'm your co-host Dawn and I am here with Roland Wise. Roland is a writer, artist, and storyteller. He loves to build things and create gardens, books, anything really. He likes to transform things into something better. Roland grew up in the South in a tumultuous household and has often described his childhood as being raised in a bag full of rattlesnakes. He notes that being still was instilled early on and being invisible was always the goal. Even today, with all that in his rearview mirror, he finds himself trying to accommodate others by being less than he might ought to. Roland's first kid's book was his breakthrough and came out in 2015. Farmer Dreams is an all-rhyming picture book for all ages. His book began years ago and was originally a poem about his writer's block. His book is all about the safety of a seed who opens to water, then faces drought. And his artistic side is freeway drawing. The latest versions are full color with all the colors of the chakras. That series he calls Chakraville. So welcome, welcome. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. So we always kick off with our question um, that I'm going to throw at you. So what identities do you feel most influence your experience? Well, I identify as a gay man. I'm not sure if that's the kind of identities you're looking at, but there was once upon a time, like, I feel like I came from, you know, obviously a Baptist background. They're shooting for straight. And then I went through like a phase of I don't know. It was kind of in between. Didn't know really. And then some things in my life just kind of opened up for me and I identify as a gay man. Yeah, thank you for that. And one of the other ones I'd like to hear about, too, is your artistic side that um, was in your bio. So it sounds like there's a couple layers to your artistic side in writing, in making art. And how did you come across that? Well, I think I'm far more creative and artistic than I am gay. <laughs> I mean, there's like, you could, like, being gay is a pamphlet. Mm. Uh, being artistic and creative and wanting to find out, like, who I am beyond all that mm -hmm. inside me, that's like a volume of books. So, you know, for the... I always say the label is for for clarity purposes. Like if you went into the grocery store and everything was just a tin can and there was no labels or, you know, it's, it's just convenient that we say these are mashed potatoes and these are green beans mm -hmm. so that we can do our thing and not have to figure it out when we get home. Right. So kind of, that's kind of the way I look at it. But there's, I think there are so many more interesting things about me on the creative realm, you know, I think we ought to stop maybe sometimes instead of saying I am gay, just I am. Mm. That's a pretty powerful way to stop and connect with yourself, or at least that's the way I see it. Yeah, yeah. So 
what came first for you? Was it more the writing creativity side or the creating visual art creativity side? How did that develop for you? Well, I have to kind of address the bag of rattlesnakes in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the way that the reason I draw maps or freeway systems mm-hmm. is because it's perspective. So I draw a map. So if you look at the perspective, like is I'm at a bird's eye view looking down. And I think that was my safety net is being up there away from whatever was going on in our household. And it was tumultuous. It was, there was violence, violence toward pets that I experienced from my father. And I think that I just kind of went up into the ether and looked back down. And that's what I drew. I drew what I saw. Mm-hmm. And it's because my earlier drawings are of more roads around where I came from. Mm-hmm. And as I moved into the cities, city after city after city, it became obviously expressway and sprawl. And, mm-hmm. and part of that for me was, you know, drawing the details of those interchanges where roads meet roads. It was the way that I changed. It was my interchange. I mean, you know, I'm a Southern boy, so God had to keep it simple. <laughs> change, interchange. I say God loosely. I mean, inner being, whatever you want to call it. So I think that the creative, the way that I li- had to live is to be above it so that I could see and honestly see what was coming. So that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah, and you described it as needing to have this stillness, you know, and I feel like that imagery of being still in a bad bag of rattlesnakes so that you're not seen and then attacked is so powerful. And what was that experience like to be from, you know, how you describe it to be still to survive? Well, to be still. So imagine you weren't a rattlesnake in that bag, but you identified as a rattlesnake so that you didn't get bit. There was kind of a, not to go with the snake analogy too far, but I had to shed that once I got away from that and, not identify with whatever it took to survive and, you know, maybe become a lamb or something cute, (laughs) a bunny rabbit. But I was thinking about that the other day, like if there's a bunch of snakes in a dark bag, they maybe only bite what goes in the bag. But if you're already there, so I feel like I just kind of landed in this situation and, it was my duty to find who I was. And when it got too much, that's when I kind of went up. That's the stillness, the smallness. It's not that I became small. It's became, it's because, you know, like a balloon gets smaller, the higher you go up, but it was, that was kind of my safety zone. You know, it was said of me all the time, get your head out of the clouds. It's like, get me, all of me out of the clouds Yeah. and the struggle of my life is to, you know, come back to earth. And a a lot of people don't like that about me. And 
but it was my, you know, everything's all right. It all makes sense if you look at everything that happened. It's the way, you know, it was, I think we spoke a little before. It was my shaping mechanism. Mm, yeah. The thing that shaped me. So I feel like I, you know, when you go get the flu shot and you get the antibody, they give you a little bit of something you don't want so that you unity from it. I think that my earlier life is becoming basically anything not like, I don't want anything like I was raised with. The more they did that, the more, the more I went up, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah, to distance yourself from it, be safe. So when in your life were you able to essentially leave that bag of rattlesnakes and go and move toward something that felt more you? Well, one thing, just like the flu shot, you know how we all wander down to Walgreens in January and get, you know, we go back for another shot. I did that for years and, you know, Every time I went home, it was that experience of getting the vaccination. And, you know, no one ever asked me who I was or how it felt to be me. I mean, the questions that I got at that point, because I think they were afraid of the answer, was, you know, questions like, could you pass the salt? Like if we were at dinner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or how's the weather? But, um, yeah, I, I feel like... I went back for more and more and I, against therapists, against their recommendation, every my life is like you of all people, like if they knew my story, you don't need to go back. And that's just not, I never, I, I always wanted, I always had hope. You know, how you have hope. You want, you want someone to change. And I've long since let that go. I've changed. I'm like, it's so far in my rearview mirror, I can look at it with a certain level of um, earned detachment, mm. not unconscious detachment. Like I know full and well what's in the mirror, but I've, I've learned. I've learned how to remain escaped, even if I'm there, you know, there's always something to help my mother with. My, my dad has passed and... You know, I'll go home and, you know, it's been harder since our new president because, you know, there's that and the, the stomach, some of the rhetoric I hear. Exactly. Yeah, that makes it a lot harder. And um, I've talked a little bit on the podcast about, you know, my experience of growing up in in an abusive household, more, you know, seeing mainly just domestic violence abuse and just kind of being that outsider trying to not get bit, like you said, you know. And then as adults, how we transfer that and navigate those connections to family um, mm -hmm. can be really tricky. And I think, like you said, the current president and political situation makes it really, really hard, especially when family aligns with that and – for me, my family, I just found out some of them aligned with that, and I never fathomed 
that scenario because on the surface and in my experience, my family's always identified as really liberal. They've always, you know, raised me and voiced, you know, being supportive of people and people's identities. I wasn't scared to come out. But then there's a whole new environment we're in where for some reason people are feeling in alignment with the messages of the president right now. And it's really hard to wrap my brain around. I'll tell you what, for my family, it's all about money. Mm. This president, I don't know how he's pulled it off, mm. but they're making money in the stock market and they want, they want that more than anything. Cause there was a period of time when, you know, some of my more liberal family supported mm-hmm. me and, you know, like my aunt and uncle, they, they were always there. And then Trump thing came up and I'm not supposed to say his word, his name. I'm sorry. <laughs> I could bleep it out. <laughs> bleep it out. <laughs> they, I felt so betrayed at the beginning. I was in shock. I was betrayed. Because me and my sister are like literally the only people left. Mm. And, you know, we're like, what the F? We don't know what is going Like with my mom, I get that. Mm-hmm. I expect it. But with some of the others, it just, it, it was the big crack heard all around the family. And I just... I just let go. I quit trying to get them to see let it all go. And the beautiful part of that is it, it invited me to go deeper in myself because I had to back that letting go up with a lot of meditation and breathing and, you know, and that's, that's the key. You know, we, we wish he would go away and we wish that, he wouldn't get reelected and we wish a lot of things, but this is pressing us toward our healing in a big way. And, you know, I want to go on record and say one day we're going to thank all this because of how it shaped us. It's, it's bringing people together with the power of what we have to say next. We're connecting with story like you're doing. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. But do I want him to go? Yes. Do I want him not to get elected? Yet? Like, yes, yes, yes. Like, of course. But the, what's happening now, it's, it's like the, the beginning of the revolution of coming together. Like, you know, people agreeing and I don't know, I'm rambling, but, and I don't revolution like revolution, but, you know, things are happening. Things are, it's, it's all right. Everything's going to be all right. I know they can gut punches all day long, but. Yeah, I truly hope so. Yeah. And I know with your story you have for us today, you've seen a lot of the hate that's been out there and the way that has happened throughout history. Right. So, um, I think your story is in a really, a really important one to tell and share. And I'd love to hear that today as well. This story is called The Wandering Angel. 
So in, I think it was a month after Matthew Shepard passed away, was murdered. Um, he was beaten, of course, and then he died in the hospital a few days later. About a month after that, I was in Washington, D.C. with my then girlfriend. I was experimenting with being bi around the time. And we stayed with a bunch of gay friends of hers. And they were like, hey, Ellen's speaking at the Capitol Steps. Do you want to go hear her? She's giving a speech on Matthew Shepard and what's going on. And we, everyone agreed, like, yeah, let's go. So we jump on the subway and we get down there. And if you look up the speech on YouTube, it's just this heartfelt Ellen up there just saying, you know, this is what I was trying to stop with the show and everything. And she was just very upset and it was just very emotional and moving. And I left there that night thinking, we can't forget Matthew Shepard. And I had this brainstorm go through my mind about we should make a bumper sticker that says, don't forget Matthew Shepard, because I just felt like this is this is huge. I didn't even know why it was all new, but something was in me that felt like we have to take note of this. And because this had been happening, this is not it was nothing new, but it just it came at the time and it just hit everyone and so I got back to Kansas City and a few days later I found out a friend of mine had passed away and he had died in a ski wreck a ski accident in Denver so I was I needed to buy a car because I was going to the funeral I didn't have a car so I looked on a Craigslist ad and I found this Nissan Sentra. And I went to meet with the lady. Turns out she was a nun. She's very apologetic about the seat. The velour seats were all perfect except for where the driver sat. And she's like, no one ever rode with me. And I was kidding with her. I'm like, well, you know, maybe the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost, and they don't put any wear marks on the car. And she felt so bad, she gave me $500 off because of the appearance. So I get this $1,500 car and I go to the insurance, my insurance company and I'm like, here's my credit card, load me up on insurance, give me my temporary thing. I'm leaving for Denver tomorrow morning. And they printed me out a card and he's like, I'll take care of all the paperwork, just sign here. On the way home, some kids threw out a piece of concrete from the bushes or somebody threw in front of my car and I tumbled over it and it, you could just feel it grinding on the underneath of the car. And I was like, Oh my God, what was that? And I stopped and looked, um, took it to the mechanic the next morning. He's like, well, there's some lumps in the floorboard that we can beat out when you get back, but just, it's fine. Just go. So a little ways into Denver, when I stopped for gas, I noticed the starter wasn't working and I just assumed something that big piece of concrete knocked it loose or something. So I kind of had to push my car and get it going and crank start it. And my dad was a mechanic, so I know how to do that. So I'm like, well, this is not an issue. If I park on a hill, Denver has a lot of little hills, so that shouldn't be an issue. So I went, kept on going and 
after the funeral, I went to this coffee shop and I met this, I met this guy named Kevin and a really handsome young man. We started chatting and talking and he said, Hey, do you want to get some lunch? And we went and got some lunch and this is Capitol Hill. This is the gay area, the coffee shop, the King Supers grocery store, which they called the Queen Supers. Like it was just all the, and the gay park, which we'll get to in a minute. We went and got a salad and I was just putting stuff on and my salad was like fourteen ninety five, And we, you know, this was 20 years ago. We were like, oh my God, how is that so expensive? But I got a lot and we took our salads and went to the park and there was a, we just were palling around, just having a good day. It felt kind of romantic to me, but we were just palling around and we had our salad. There was so much salad. I ended up putting my salad on the front seat of my car and went, went to me. I was parked right there went to meet him again. And we found a shopping cart and he pushed me in the shopping cart through the park. Like we were just being dumb and having fun. And it felt like a connection. And he said, you know, I got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm seeing some, I live with someone, I'm seeing someone. And I said, yeah, no, I feel, I, I don't know what's going on. This is just weird. And he said, I would, I want you to meet Rodney, but I know that he would be jealous. He wouldn't understand. And I said, yeah. So I said, well, I'm here a few more days. Let's meet for coffee. And he said, well, I'll see how he's acting and I'll maybe bring up that we meet you tonight for a drink and introduce you guys. Cause I think he would dig you if he was secure that there was just nothing going on. So I went back and got in my car and I circled around the park and I pulled up, found a little hill and I stopped to do my Oprah book by Ayanla Van Zant. Um, one day my soul just opened up and the day was surrender. So I was filling out like, how do you surrender in your life daily, blah, 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 and filling out the questionnaire, reading the passage. And I glanced up. There was a Jaguar in front of me about two cars ahead. And I saw this guy dressed in camouflage, like pointing a gun in the window, like just very bizarre. And I my first thought was, dude, didn't your mom tell you not to point water guns at people? Like, that's that's not cool. You don't pretend you have a gun if it's not a real gun. Because I just couldn't process it. And then the guy put his hand out of the car and it was shaking. And it was he was handing him his money clip. And when I saw the hand shaking, I, it was like, oh, my God, this is real. So... I was just staring and I turned my car on and nothing, the starter wouldn't work. Now, sometimes it would just crank. Sometimes it was like the Ouija starter. You didn't know what was going to happen. And I had the key turn the whole time with my foot on the brake and my foot on the clutch. And I was just going to like zoom out of there. And Suddenly, the guy started shooting into the car and into the Jaguar. And I was just like, oh, my God. And then he turned and looked at me. And 
I'm like, he's going to come kill me. He's, this is it for me. So I laid down in the seat and I still had my key cranked, like on crank, like, you know, when you crank a car and it goes tick, 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 tick. This didn't even do that. It was just silent. And then it would either crank or not. So I'm laying down and I said, you know, this is what I always do. I, I become small. I curl up. I hide from, I said, if, you know, if he's going to kill me, he's going to have to look at me and I'm going to maybe ask him why he's doing this. I don't know. So I look up and he's walking away from the car that he shot into and he's walking away from us. And meanwhile, this, the guy in the car is like screaming with his hands out the window and these joggers are coming over to help him. And the car cranks, like I've, I've still got my key turned and the car cranks like, boom. and I put it in gear, let off the clutch and I floored it. And I went around the car and the joggers helping him. And I pointed it at the gunman and I drove as I just floored it. He got into his car and closed the door about the time I hit the door and I just pushed him down the parkway and he's like screaming at me like, what the F are you doing hitting my car? You know? And I'm like, uh, dude, what are you doing? You just shot someone. I think what I'm doing, no importance. He corrected his car and sped away and I chased him through the park over grass all the way to the exit of the park. And this was 4.30 in the afternoon in Denver. There's, we're cross, he's crossing one-way streets. Denver has like all kind of streets going in and out. And then a main street and four one-ways and then a main street. And he's just flying through these stop signs. And I'm like, someone's going to get killed. And I would go up to a stop sign and look. And there was no traffic. It was like, no traffic, no traffic. There are no cars anywhere. I'm like, this is crazy. And I just kept following him. Finally, he got around. Was, the park is around 6th, 7th or 8th. And he got to 17th Street. And he hit a Pontiac Le Mans, which of that era was a smaller car. And it went up in the air like a flying saucer. It hit a tree cradled into the branches and the tree bent all the way over. And then as the tree came back up, right, the car slid down like very softly onto the ground. And this lady kicks the door open and she's madder than a hornet. Like what the hell's going on? You just hit me. And she's getting out of the car. Other people are coming around him. He's trying to find something in the Jeep he's in. He's looking frantically cursing at people to get away from him and pointing at me and then looking, he's trying to find the gun. And I'm like, he's going to find the gun and he's going to walk over. Cause I'm like three car lengths away. He's going to kill me. So he starts walking to me. I back my car up and I hit, I back into cars who are backing into cars who are backing into cars. Like I'm going backward, move, or get out of my way because I got to get out of here. He finally turns around 
goes back and looks in the car again, and then he runs off. And I spin, I go forward, I go around the crash, and I keep going. He jumps over into a yard, over a fence, and he runs back out to 18th. At the stop sign, I see him jump over the fence and go into this little bar. And I'm like, I'm not going in the bar. So I went back to the wreck, parked my car, got out. Now, everyone there thinks that I'm the bad guy because I was chasing him. They have no idea what he's done at the park. And this lady's like screaming at me, what I like, what did you do? I'm like, ma'am, you need to leave me alone. I'm just, I'm having a nervous breakdown here. The cops come. You can hear cops going to the park eight blocks away and you can hear them coming to us, the ambulances. And so the cop gets there and he's like, you know, he's having to come deal with a traffic accident while there's something bigger going on at the park, which now he's doing this accident. And I began to talk, you know, the gunman, the gunman from the park is in this bar and like, or I saw the gunman in the park. He ran that way and da, 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 And he's like, Whoa, wait a minute. How do you know about the gunman in the park? And then he's like, is this your car? Are you blue car guy? And this is Jeep car guy. Oh my God, you didn't shoot anyone. And I'm like, no, I saw him shoot someone. And they're like, so you didn't. And they put me in the, they put me in the cruiser and like locked me in there. And they said, hold on. And I'm like beating on the window. And he came over and opened the door. He's like, what? And I said, I know where the guy is. He's, at this, I named the bar, and so they were like, hang tight. So they went, and they arrested him inside the bar, and then they drove me by for a witness identification. They held him, and I just, I said, yes, that's him, and they took me back. So all this, you know, now it's getting dark. There's two total cars there. He had carjacked the car earlier that day, 30 minutes before he shot the guy in the park. And he had carjacked, taken the car to the park, witnessed friends of his. So he was some, from some kind of clan in the mountains, some kind of militant family or something. And he had told, he had told um, people the day before watch the news because he said, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach y'all how to kill fags. You watch the news in Denver. So he was on a mission. He was in a gay area and he was up to no good. And he stole the car so he wouldn't, so he could just get away and dump the car. And so I went through, we went through the interview, the, filling out the reports and because I never saw him or because I never took my eyes off him, I always kept in enough contact with him. It was kind of an airtight thing and he was on strike three. So he went away for 40 years or whatever. And so I did the news that night they blacked out my face because I was already getting death threats by his family. The The police were took a tag number from a truck that was circling the police station where he was and I was giving the report. 
And so they got me out of there the back way and got me actually back to my car. So the salad, my salad in the car, my big salad was like you hose the dash, the, you know, all the vents just full of salad. Cause when I hit him, the salad kept going. So I was like, Oh my God. So it was drivable. It was like I was, you know, hunting with a spotlight going up into the trees, but it was drivable. So I took it back to my friends. So the next day, um, I see Kevin at the coffee shop and he's like, Hey, I tried, I tried to call you yesterday. I was about to call, I was about to call you back later, but Rodney's friend Dino got shot in the park last night and it's like his best. We had to rush to the hospital to see him. And I'm like, yeah. I said, did you see the paper or the news? And he's like, yeah, this, somebody chased the gunman down. And I was like, that was me. And we both, we both just started crying because it was all tied together. It was like being silly. And if you ever get to know me, you'll know that I'm not going to get in a shopping cart unless someone pushed me around. But we were just being silly and connecting and just just making making what I had to do a hell of a lot easier, even though I didn't know what was about to happen. And now I have cred, street cred with Rodney, like, hey, there's nothing going on here. You know, and we went through all that and it was beautiful. Like, thanks. And I got to meet um, Dino and he he's fine. I mean, he's not fine. He got shot, but he lived and he went on with his life. And so that led to me meeting Romaine Patterson, who happened to be the barista at the coffee shop eavesdropping on what Kevin and I were saying. So later on, she said, Hey, I hear you're the town hero. And she said, you know, in a a day or so we're going to meet and we're putting together this thing called angel action. We're going to plan out how to build the wings and look at the schematics from the internet. And, um, if you want to come meet, you know, you're welcome to. And, that's how I became one of Matthew Shepard's angels, who you probably know, went to Laramie because the Fred Phelps hate group was post, you know, they had their signs, their hate signs at the funeral. And we wanted to shield Judy and Dennis Shepard going into the courtroom by standing in a line with all these angel wings so that they couldn't see the hate. And so we did that protest a few months later. And I met all the friends I have today, I met there. Like, it was just a whole new group, and it was life-changing. So, skipping back to being in Denver after the shooting, I had to go back to Kansas City. That's where I lived. I had to go face my life, and I had, I had to fly home because they totaled the car. The car was totaled, salad and all. I had to let it go. And so by the time I got home, I was 
you know, the news channels met me like at the airport, like wanting the story because now it's breaking story. And, you know, I before I was all scared and weepy and like, oh, this, how did this? And now I'm a little bit more of a ham, you know, well, John, you know, violence is terrible. Like, I'm like speaking out and my voice is starting to come out. And I had to deal with the insurance company, which if you know anything about insurance, they, if you don't tell them to uncheck all the boxes, they check the boxes and you pay for all these things you don't ever expect to use. Like if you're away from home more than 500 miles and total your car, you get 1500 for hotel, 1500 for travel, 1500 for lost wages, 1500 for, you know, whatever. And my insurance payout was almost $10,000 on a $1,500 car. And the guy at the insurance company, when I went to get my check, I said, hey, you know, I did pay the full premium for the year. So I need to get refunded for that. <laughs> and he was like, oh, we owe you more money? Like, but everyone, because there was no police report, I mean, faulting me, you know, hey, here's your check. So I used that money and I quit my job. They wouldn't even let me quit. The owner of the landscape company sent, I was the accountant. He sent the computer and the fax machine and the printer with me. And he's like, just do what you do there for us here. We'll, we'll FedEx and do an email and just don't quit, just go. And that's when I moved to Denver and you know, when it came time to do the angel protest, I lived in Denver and these people were my friends and we went up to Wyoming to do it. So that was all, you know, this whole thing, which led to my friend Martin made this movie called Journey to a Hate-Free Millennium. And the focus was Matthew Shepard and all this stuff was happening up there and it was you know, it was sad, but it was beautiful because we were doing something. We were speaking about it. And we end up in Los Angeles receiving the um, Simon Wiesenthal Anti-Defamation Award. And I'm in the green room with Ellen now. And she's like, hey, you're that angel guy on Newsweek or somewhere. They sent me a photo of the photo of you. And I had this real sad like horrified, sad look on my face as an angel. So some of that got picked up in the press. My dad wasn't impressed. He was like, I don't know why you have to run around with a bunch of fags in sheets in Wyoming. I don't understand why you'd want to be on the front page of a magazine or whatever. And, you know, it was just, I think my mom fell asleep during the movie like I we I brought the journey to a hate free like video cassette and she fell asleep five minutes in like it's just the same stuff but I was still in that point of trying to prove and trying to prove and so after all that kind of settled down I went away to Seattle to take a sabbatical some friends gave me their apartment for a few months and I'm driving down Broadway and. I s slow down for traffic and the windows are down and this guy is like 
sitting at the back of his car and he just says, what are you looking at, you fag? And I was like, oh my God, like we're in the gay area. That's weird. And I, it made me so mad. I called 911 and reported him. And there were cops there like in two minutes. And so I pulled down and waited for them to haul the guy away, which I didn't know why they were hauling him away. And he, I went down and asked, I said, Hey, I'm the one that called what, what's going on. And the guy's like, this, this guy had a trunk full of loaded guns. It was like some Chevy Camaro or something. And it's like a trunk load of loaded guns. Thanks for calling. And I just like, I just started coming apart. And when I got back to the apartment, I went, I had a lot of my journals with me and I went back and it was exactly one year to the date of the park shooting. And I just was, I was like started to come apart and I knew I needed some kind of healing modality. I went to a rape healer and I told her what had happened. And she said, you know, your energy you don't have energy, any energy below your knees. And she said, that's, that's a sign of someone who's not willing to come to the ground for some reason. And I'm like, well, because I live up here, I don't live down here. And that was a very slow process. It's been 20 years now of me choosing things that put me on the ground. And the, the art, the freeway art was always black and white pencil drawings. And suddenly I expanded them a little bit. So when you expand a freeway in a drawing, it means you're getting closer to it. Right. So these spaghetti junctions, I would draw like crazy drawings, like 12 freeways that meet at once with 875 on and off ramps and a beltway to support the ramps that won't work logistically like crazyville but i added the chakra or the colors and i i came in a little bit zoomed in and named it chakraville and it just you know it's a lot easier to draw it's not spaghetti i don't have one with me but so that was part of me just kind of trying to come back to earth and it's it's taken 20 years and then this kid's book was all about you know this it's 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 really safe a seed you know you can take a seed and put it in a dry place for thousands of years and there's absolutely no vulnerability whatsoever required for that except a dry space and once that seed succumbs to humidity or water it's, it's time, like it's, it's go time. And I feel like when I got close enough to the ground and planted myself in it and watered the seed, then all the negative feelings that I had been trying to keep at bay or was harboring was the drought. And I was like, you know, oh man, <laughs> there's no going back. You know, and it was it's been it's been tough because we talked about the healing modality of these stories. Yeah. 
that's the point. It's, you know, they're not meant to say, don't be a seed, and they're not even meant to be water. They're meant to teach people vulnerability. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it rains and sometimes it doesn't, you know? I've had a lot of things that, like the other day, I was in a shame storm when our recording didn't work. Mm, Same, same. (laughs) A shame storm, like it was me. I'm so dumb. I don't know. I didn't push a button. I had the volume off. I took that on day and I had I had to meditate and the message I got eventually was these are your stories and you can flick a seed on the sidewalk and let it sit there and do nothing or not have volume and you can do it again and throw it in the right spot and let it this is yours you it's all yours you know you, you own it and I'm telling you, that was meant to be. I hope, I hope you know that. Like the the, the technical difficulty. Now, at three, at five fifty four, your time is. Mercury goes into retrograde. So, mm. so what? When's your next one? <laughs> Need to shut it down by then. <laughs> this is it. We're done for the day. Oh, so good. that's good. Yeah, and. Yeah, I felt very similarly. So it's it's interesting that you say, you know, you took that on as well because that had never happened and it's just, it went through a whole wave of emotions and feel thoughts and, you know, I think whether you were in the middle of the shame storm or not, your response to it to me felt calming and that helped me. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that we were both able to get to a space where we realize like this is for whatever reasons, how it's supposed to play out. We strive, like we have this whole good and bad thing Mm. going on. And when it's good, it's like, yay, it's good. It's all right. Everything's great. Mm. But when it's bad, we need to learn to say the same thing Mm. because we're getting a little dose of what we don't want so that we can learn how to figure out what we do want. Mm. You didn't know about that button before. Right. I learned. Yeah. Yeah. Now you do. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. That's true. Like, so everything was worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 it's beautiful because it's a package. It it had its work in you. It had its work in me. Yeah. I'm sure the other people you say Mm -hmm. that had to redo it. Right. Right. It had to, it had its work in them mm-hmm. and everything's fine. You know, yeah. here we are. You're doing something important here. Mm. And that's all it means is keep on keeping on. So that's the way I see it at least. Mm, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I know so many are going to hear your story and something that I really appreciate about it, which is kind of how this moment is too, is there are so many full circles that happen that come back and reconnect that mm-hmm. are really important pieces. And the way that timing is so essential and the way mm-hmm. that it coming back around and then healing and makes sense is just yeah. something that I think is a powerful message that comes out of all of this. Yeah. I'm, 
the best part of that whole story to me is the shopping cart. Mm, that joy. I would have probably, probably gotten killed if I hadn't have gotten in that shopping cart and mm-hmm. taken away some of the pressure to be good or to be right or to be precise. Mm. You know, it yeah. just, it eased me up mm. so that I could do something courageous, mm-hmm. stupid. I'm still not sure. <laughs> yeah, in the moment, who knows how that would have gone down, but you're fortunate you were meant to be in that space at that time. Yeah, it's all about timing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if those joggers hadn't have come, I would have stopped to help him. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. but it was like, I don't know. It yeah. it was a miraculous moment for me and crazy. Yeah. I'm sure there are so many who are thankful that you were there for all of those moments. Yeah. Well, where we're at now with violence and gun, like this was a little less than a year before Columbine. Mm. So yeah, we're still living in, in so much violence and it's, really sad to think about how that hasn't shifted in in a more positive way and in some instances has gotten worse and being able to connect with one another and be there to support one another through all of this is is really important and like you said you've gotten some of your most deepest strongest connections through these experiences yeah well I can't stress enough the healing modality that's going on with this whole storytelling movement. Mm. That power, you know. Yeah, I agree. Like each other's story, mm-hmm. and then um, meditating. As I said last time, was that's become like my go-to, mm-hmm. and it's tough to do. Like with a mind like mine, I mean, I go off onto rabbit trails, but I come right back. And that's the is coming right back, and there's just so much going on. So up here in the media, like it's all there's a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, the honesty and vulnerability in storytelling, I, I do truly believe, is is really healing. And even you know, I've been thinking about ways to incorporate it in other areas of my life too, because it's healing for me. And the podcast is a big piece of that, you know, creating healing space for others and opportunity to, to feel validated and seen and understood, I think is, is really important. So thank you for playing your role in that too. Well, what else am I going to (laughs) do? Kind of screwed to do anything else. (laughs) You were meant to do that. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're winding down on time, and I want to make sure you have a space to talk about all of your projects and things that you have going. What do you want people to check out? Well, first of all, Farmer Dreams. Um, you can find it uh, at farmerdreams.com, www.farmerdreams.com. Um, it's a tale of the seed and the perils it faces as it goes on its journey. Um, it's a little girl, Franny. She has a farm. She doesn't have any parents, but it's not like, she's not like an orphan. I just wanted her to be a kid. 
this kid farmer or slightly younger woman, I guess. I don't know. And that's book one. I've got There's a series coming. Book two is called Gridlock Granny. Mm. It's kind of like old woman in the shoe, but old woman who lives in the middle of all the encroaching freeways. <laughs> and the DOT is trying to take her, take more of her land. Mm, yeah. She's not happy with that. And granddaughter is Franny. Mm. So their journey, they get an attorney. It's, it's for the more liberal child or the more precocious child, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Love it. And that should be coming out at some point as soon as I can afford to do the artwork. So I don't do the artwork. This, I'm my amazing Terry Keller mm-hmm. she lives in Ireland. She does my artwork. And they're all watercolors. They're this big. Wow. They're like original watercolors. Beautiful work. So, But check that out. Um, the Shockerville site is being built. So Great. Well, thank you so much. I hope we connect again, and I really appreciate you taking time to be here. Okay. Thank you so much, and peace. Thank you. Bye. Connect with Beyond Queer Stories on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and on Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, click the link on our Facebook or Instagram page or email us at beyondqueerstories at gmail.com. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please rate us and subscribe to help boost the podcast. Our podcast music is created by Beast Steadwell. Check out her music, tour dates, and other queer art at beaststeadwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L dot com. Beyond Core Stories is produced and edited by Dawn Brown and recorded in the Cards Against Humanity podcast studio in Chicago, Illinois. Check out their products at cardsagainsthumanity.com. Talk to you all next week. Bye. 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 Bye.